This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. Hello, mental workers, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are talking about what on earth to do when clients share offensive views in the therapy room. It's an interesting question. I don't actually know some of the answers to it, but I'm hoping that our guest today does. And their name is Brian Chang. They are a repeat guest. You may know them from previous episodes. Hi, Brian. Hey, Bronwyn. Thank you for having me once again. My pleasure. And Brian, just tell the listeners who you are. Well, I was, it's interesting as I was doing research for this topic, the concept of like identity and culture came up and, it, you know, talking about how we identify ourselves. So I don't know, top five things that how I identify myself. I guess, yeah, I identify myself as a psychologist and I feel that way. I'm a cyclist. I'm a foodie. Um, I'm a dad. Yeah. But at the moment I'm working in schools as a school psychologist. Excellent. Thank you. I love how you added on your other identities to us. It <laughs> gives us a little bit of a background. Brian? I think today we're going to start off with a case study and then we're going to talk about what listeners need to know about what, I guess, some ways that they could think about approaching clients or the situation where they share offensive views, right? Yeah, because it's, I don't think it's, it's not really something we're taught in, uh, in our training. I, it's even something that's not really talked about in peer supervision or um, more generally. So I think it's a really fascinating one. So yeah, so I was in... Um, peer supervision with other school counselors and school psychologists. Like these are all quite experienced clinicians. Most of them would be 10 plus years in, in the business. And one of the clinicians was talking about a student that um, had presented to them. Um, the student had been expressing some misogynistic views around gender and sex, kind of, you know, along the lines of a lot of this toxic masculinity, Andrew Tate style stuff that a lot of young um, young teenage men are, are are talking about and are into. So uh, my colleague is having trouble managing this and, and struggling with what to do next. I mean, the, the students themselves, they were struggling with their own identity. Like they weren't just kind of saying all these offensive things and being really aggressive. They were actually really concerned about their views and about not being heard, feeling quite isolated. I think the student has started to get some backlash from their peers. Um, but what was really interesting was the responses from all the peers, all the school psychs in the room. Some of them were just like, oh, you know, what's what's a student doing? Like, are they a, a client for counselling? You know, I've got to move them on. Other, other uh, counsellors were saying, oh, okay, yeah, that's tricky. It's hard to know how to respond. The, the counsellor that brought this uh, case to supervision was um, a person of colour and she was kind of, and a, and a woman as well. And so she wasn't sure kind of, how to approach it. But I think that example kind of shows that even in a, a room of experienced counsellors, there's a real wide variety of responses and in general, just a real unsureness of how to approach it. Wow, there is a lot in that. And taking it back to your original point, like, yeah, I haven't received any instruction on how to deal with offensive views or views that I consider offensive, but it really does strike me that I guess it intersects between the therapist's identity, so in this case being a person of colour and a woman, and with the views expressed, I guess we could understand that um, she might find that quite personally offensive to her. Exactly right. So the counsellor was trying to figure out how to sit with it within herself, and I guess maybe the initial advice we gave to her, and I think something for the listeners to know, is that this this area and this kind of content is, in counselling is is can be very offensive and can be very triggering. 
So if it's if it's going to be too much for you, then it's totally okay to refer on or to definitely you know definitely seek that extra supervision because this kind of content is um is really really challenging. I think that's the first thing to tell listeners really is that you do have that permission to refer on. Like your well-being is important as well. And if somebody is saying views that really are quite activating for you and you cannot concentrate on the session, you cannot be there for the client to assist them in the way that you usually would for a client. And it's affecting you and say you're ruminating on it outside of sessions and talking about it in peer supervision hasn't helped, then, you know, that's an option for you, right? I mean, you've touched on this with many other guests, but I guess as psychologists, we often feel like we have to do it all and we have to solve everything that's in the room, but that's you know definitely not the case. And I guess in, in these scenarios where there's a greater likelihood of triggering and kind of counter-transference and things like that, it can make it trickier for everyone. So it's really in everyone's best interest to, to refer on. So let's work out how to unpack this situation because there's a lot in there. So it's like one, we've got a young person who's figuring out their own identity. And I was thinking as you were speaking to that, I was like, oh, maybe the peers agree with these views. And so that's like a a thing that they are continuing to have these views. But you actually said that the peers are not liking his views. It may be the case that he was getting peer positive uh, affirmational conditioning from other sources, yeah, we didn't we didn't go into the specifics of it, but as as we know, um, social media and online sources are a massive kind of echo chamber for a lot of these um, offensive or extremist views, for want of a better term. So I think that that is a, a big factor. Um, so potentially, that's a good point of assessment is speaking to client or the student about how they, these views are formed, whether it's come from social media, or perhaps it's come from their family, um, or maybe from their, you know, their religious background or any other kind of cultural background. Again, building that formulation around these beliefs can be really useful in understanding their origin um, and starting to, to perhaps tackle them. Yeah. So I guess by formulation, we're saying like, okay, how does the person come to form these views? What's keeping them going? What's the function of them? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting in this space of toxic masculinity. Um, obviously, the, the kind of social environment and the political environment is really important. I mean, I, I don't know heaps about this area, but the, the little bit I've heard and read is talking about how after every kind of wave of feminism, there tends to be this wave of toxic masculinity or kind of a crisis of masculinity. Obviously, the, the, the Me Too movement and I guess um, the associated movements are predominant and been very powerful and, and important. But subsequently, you get this kind of crisis of of masculinity that's coming through and that's personified by people like Andrew Tate and also people like our not so esteemed colleague, Jordan Peterson, yeah. uh, that are kind of seeing that crisis in young men in particular, and then forwarding a lot of these kind of problematic and negative views that, that yeah, we're certainly seeing in schools, a lot of young men adopting So like, I guess like maybe one way of formulating this is that young people are already trying to figure out their identity. Like that's their key psychosocial stage of adolescence, figure out who they are as separate from their parents' fortune identity. And maybe like there's this social aspect, which is kind of coming in and then trending them towards these, I guess, uh, very negative views about women. And maybe they're thinking, could this be part of my identity? Maybe, maybe hating women is is part of it. I don't know. Well, I guess it's part of this, this it's always been part of this age group, but I feel, really feel like it's propelled by social media and, and the broader gender culture. Yeah, certainly in, in the schools I'm working in, there's that the language and the kind of values around 
toxic masculinity are really strong, um, even to the point where some some of the girls are kind of also playing into that, almost like a sense of, you know, lateral violence or kind of not playing into it, but they're kind of in, enveloped in, into that culture too. So I think it does take a bit to to unpack that. There might there might be some of those predisposing factors in terms of family of origin or, or religion or anything like that, but definitely uh, adolescence is uh, a prime petri dish, yeah. I think, for, for those challenging groups. So I guess for therapists, maybe here it's like, let's say they hear the offensive view and they notice a reaction in themselves, maybe some tension, maybe some anger, maybe some confusion or upsetness. I guess like it's really important for that therapist to notice that and then maintain a non-judgmental stance towards the client so you can figure out where their views are coming from, let them express themselves and encourage that open communication. I think that's so spot on. I mean, I was listening to... Um, your other podcast with, I don't remember her name, but the, but the sex therapist. Oh, Emma. Yeah. Yeah. And and you guys are talking about those kind of automatic reactions. Yeah. And I think that's super relevant in this topic. I guess that's something to to maybe practice and to kind of, to give it a go is like, like, like watching content or role-playing kind of these kind of disclosures of offensive views with peers, just so that you get habituated to it and you can test what your, what your facial reactions are. Yeah. Because we're going to talk about this. Um, we're going to talk about whether you should disclose that you feel offended to clients and if so, under what mm-hmm. circumstances. But I do just want to say to listeners, like this is like I'm actually practicing, which is like noticing and then kind of keeping that in the back of my head and being like, this could be useful for later, but it's just in my back pocket if I if I see something therapeutic about it, that it could be used later. So I'm not ignoring my feelings. I'm like, no, that was shit. I really didn't like hearing that. But I am keeping it for later potentially if I can work it into a therapeutic way. I'm wondering like what, what you do with your reactions because like, you know, I'm earlier in my career than you and I wonder if you have more sophisticated ways of doing this. I think I'm kind of lucky because like number one, I like I have quite high disgust and distress and kind of offence tolerance. Oh, like cool. I'm not really offended by much. Like, I don't know, I eat lots of like weird foods and I'm into lots of kind of weird tv shows and 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 cultures so it's like i'm I'm used to hearing a lot but i think i think sometimes my face still gives it away so Mm -hmm. i think there's always practice to do or kind of there's always new things to hear but as you said it's always something that um that you can use later i guess maybe as i've gotten more experience is just been being honest about it um being being honest about your reaction Um, particularly if you see the client notice your reaction then that's that's always going to be a useful thing to try and address in some way. Maybe not in in that moment, and maybe if it's not if it's not not in the first session that you're just meeting them, but maybe you know a couple of sessions down the track, if that's something you can kind of reflect on then. And then it can be, I guess, a point of uh, I guess a useful case example because really you're examining for the for the client how people in their life and the people around them respond to them when they express these views. So it can become kind of like an in situ piece of evidence around their relational kind of dynamics. Yeah. So I guess that's touching on the idea that if you notice discomfort with the view that's being expressed, chances are that there's somebody else in their life who is probably also experiencing that same reaction. Exactly right. That's pretty, can be pretty interesting, particularly in the adolescent space, because perhaps there is that secondary gain that the, the client is experiencing. Maybe they're enjoying that kind of outrage response from other people. This is a maybe a bit uh, of a longer kind of hypothetical or hy- hypothesis to draw, but I was thinking about how some people they're really struggling with their identity or with their their self esteem. Perhaps they might want to 
express these views in order to kind of incite hatred from oh, others. Interesting. Which then kind of reflects kind of their self-hatred. I just kind of like almost like a punk rock thing. Like I was reading a book about the bass player from New Order and he talked about how punk was telling other people to F off, but really it reflected like an inner F myself, like I hate myself. So in a similar way, maybe some of these views can reflect a projected view of self. I think that's a really interesting hypothesis, like because I'm into schema therapy, I'd be like, oh yeah, schema surrender. So it's like, you've got the say schema, which is like, I'm defective, I deserve to be punished. And I guess by eliciting the responses in other people, you can get that hatred um, that you feel that you deserve. Yeah. And the other thing that I looked up in preparation for today was this Scientific American article, which talked about, well, the headline was homophobes might be hidden homosexuals. So that's ah, yeah. if you're struggling with your your own sexuality, you've got this kind of projected hate towards others. Definitely can be a factor in different different types of views and in different arenas. Yeah. Well, like just listening to you talk about that, it's really taking me away from like the immediate offensive thing because like I hate misogyny. Spoiler. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so when I hear misogynistic views, I do notice that I wouldn't say rage, but I do feel upset and angry. But I feel like maintaining that curiosity is really important. It's like, how has the client formed these views? Where are they coming from? What's the function? Like, you know, I do wonder if they're trying to other this group so that they don't have to be part of it because they actually have a lot of stigma and shame attached to this group. Is it the Columbo stance? It's like always that curious acting dumb approach. Yeah, I wonder. Hmm, I don't understand yeah. this. <laughs> I mean, it, it can be hard to do when, when you're, you're met with something triggering or you're hearing something really challenging. But it never fails to elicit more, kind of hear more about the, the narrative. That also helps us to build to build our empathy because that line that they're using or that kind of the, the, the triggering thing that they're saying, you're hearing, yeah, its origin, you're hearing the context. It, it makes you think of the formulation. Yeah, can I hear a phrase from you? So my, my play dumb phrase is being like, oh, I'm actually not sure about this. Can you help me understand what, what about, you know, your view? Tell me a bit more about that. Um, what's your play dumb phrase? Oh, sometimes I play like the age card. Like I'm just like, oh, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, you know, been young for a while. I've not been to school. Today, but, you know, tell me, keep, keep, keep me up to speed or get me up to speed. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's a good one. I like that for working with young people. It's like me old. Yeah. <laughs> no, beautiful. Um, and can I get from you maybe what, what's a phrase that you say if you notice, like we might not say it to the clients, but how would you actually say it to them if you do notice that reaction and you feel it's appropriate to share it with them? How would you bring up your your reaction? I'll definitely do that kind of, hmm, like kind of that sitting back kind of vibe and just be like, okay, that's really interesting for me. Like I'm I'm feeling not sure about that or I'm that's affecting me in some way. So I'm just going to take a moment to to process that and to think about it. And then maybe say to the to the client, oh, have you had any responses like this from other people? Ah, uh, yeah. Like, do you, do you often get people um, that are shocked or that people that are um, excited by it or, you know, that agree with you? So I guess that's a way of kind of like buying time um, if you're kind of feeling stuck in the moment. Yeah, but maybe in a later session, um, perhaps just wondering about whether they think they have offended me. You can ask them directly, like, oh, like when you said that, do you think, do you think that was offensive for me? Mm. Um, and seeing if they've got that kind of perspective taking around that. And if they don't, then I guess, yeah, maybe moving on to another another strategy. But if they do, then that's an opportunity to have an empathic encounter and get a sense about whether they can see the, the impact of, of what they're saying. 
So I might say something to that, like just coming at this off the top of my head, but it's like mm. um, I noticed in myself that a part of me uh, felt felt upset, maybe some discomfort around what was being said. And I've heard from you that you noticed that you thought that that would offend me. And I'm wondering what that's about. So I think I'd go to play dumb and then mm. I'd be like, because, you know, I'm here to work with you as a team. So I'd affirm like my position with them. And if it's affecting me like this, I wonder how it's affecting other people in your life. So, yeah, I'd go to other people in life as well. I guess, like, that's the hypothesis that um, if I'm feeling a particular way, yeah, back to, like, other people would be feeling this way. But also that the feelings that I'm experiencing might be coming from the client as well or they might be uncomfortable with the views themselves. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful summation of, of how to go about it. I mean, the other thing that I was thinking about, and this kind of really um, puzzled me, is whose whose agenda is it to correct these kind of views? Um, I mean, obviously, if it's purely from from the therapist's perspective, and it's and if it's maybe on a topic that's not so dangerous or offensive, then it's like it's not it's maybe not so useful to to pursue. So, for example, I'm just like a frivolous example. If like if I find out my my client doesn't like the band Radiohead, yeah. <laughs> then I don't need to go down like a path of thought challenging and you know, reality testing around that. But if we're talking about, I guess, more kind of broadly problematic views like gender or racism or those things, I guess we could have a an argument that we make a judgment that those views, if held ongoingly by the client, are going to be problematic later in their life. But it won't necessarily be a explicit goal that they would identify as a therapeutic goal. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm tussling with as well is to what degree do we address the goal implicitly or in a kind of a subtle way versus explicitly? I mean, obviously, if if the client wants to reduce the views, then that's kind of an easier... Oh, yeah, that's easier. An easier yeah, great. Path to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's that kind of implicit kind of, if we have to do like sneaky sneaky therapy to change the views? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. It's a really good question. And I'll read you something that ChatGPT told me about this because I did ask ChatGPT about this. And it said, while therapists strive to create a safe and non-judgmental space, it is essential to establish boundaries and ensure that therapy does not become a platform for hate speech or the promotion of harmful ideologies. If a client's view becomes disruptive or harmful to themselves or others, it may be necessary to address this and establish boundaries around acceptable topics of discussion. So I think there's like two elements there. So it's like, I, I think I would approach it by being like, yeah, what is the, what is the potential harm that, and, and functional impact of this belief on the client's life? And I, I talk about this all the time with clients, like just in various different ways. I'm like, if somebody has an anxiety disorder and let's say they have agoraphobia and they're not going outside, it's like, if you have a preference for staying inside and you like that, like go for gold. I'm not here to be the fun police and be like, no, you need to go outside. So I try not to project like my ideas of what a good life is onto my clients. But if I'm hearing them say, look, I can't go to the shop and um, I don't want to waste um, plastic bags from the shopping delivery service. Um, I'd really love to go to the shops. Then I'm like, okay, well, we need to address the beliefs that are underlying this difficulty then because it's impacting you um, and it's affecting your ability to go see your grandkids and stuff. So I guess I, had a, I, I think I would approach the offensive view from a similar point. Like, is it causing them distress? Is it having a functional impact? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's using that kind of symptoms versus functioning thing that yeah. that we're talking on a way up. And if it's hitting that functioning um, significantly, then 
I think we've got a, a green light to kind of put it on the table as a explicit goal. Yeah, I think I don't want to do the sneaky goal. I think I would feel icky about that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if other therapists would be cool with that. How cool are you with sneaky goals? I think you could you could do it for like you can't do it every session, right? Yeah. Or you can't do it only. <laughs> you could try it for like part of a session, and then if um if it's not if you're not getting any response, then it's probably not going to work anyway. Yeah, I feel like things like just more generally, like when I have worked with people who say are quite controlling of their partners, for example, I have worked with a few people like this um, and they might not understand that their behaviour is quite controlling. I feel like if we can't explicitly name what what I'm observing and and what the impact is on their partner, then I feel like we can't address it in a way. Like there is no sneaky way of addressing that. Yeah, definitely. There's a There's a point at which it's got to be explicit. Yeah. And it has to be named. And that's part of the challenging, the challenging of those offensive views or behavior, um, which that client may not have heard or faced before in any aspect of their life. So that's where the, the therapeutic experience becomes real and powerful. Again, like schema therapy, there's the empathic confrontation, but I feel like being non-judgmental and really understanding the client's perspective and how they've formed their views and how those views are are protecting or assisting them um, can really help with that. So like if somebody has never had their view about women or a particular race brought into question, um, if you go in really gung-ho and like, yeah, I think that's a bad view, um, they're probably going to become defensive, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. um... (laughs) It reminds me a bit of, I mean, it's a classic kind of whole brain child thing, right? Is if someone's in that emotional mind or if they're holding like a really fixed belief, um, they're not going to respond to logical uh, response. You need to engage them in the emotional mind to kind of help them regulate a bit. And then that's when you can start to open up with, with thought challenging or some more higher order thinking. Yeah. So it sounds like I think therapists need to assess like whether their disclosure is going to impact a therapeutic relationship like is it going to cause a rupture or can they tolerate it because some clients really can't tolerate like even talking about the therapist like they might have had negative experiences in the past where therapists have overshared with them or something or um, they persistently feel invalidated in their lives and unlistened to and the therapist bringing up their own view might might be really um, uncomfortable for them or cause a rupture right yeah and that's I guess where particularly when you've had a, a client that's had a lot of therapy in the past, like asking about those previous experiences yeah. of, of, of counseling can help with knowing what path to take. But I think once you've, once you've got that relationship and perhaps you've got some willingness to work with, with challenging those beliefs, I think there's a lot of really fertile strategies to use. Um, just some of the things I've thought of was looking at values work yeah. and kind of keying into identity and I guess their aspirations um, and also looking at kind of goal-directed thinking. So, you know, how do you think these these beliefs will serve you in future relationships or in the workplace or you know, as a parent when in the future or whatever? But also, I guess, particularly for young people or perhaps people that haven't formed their identity is letting them know that beliefs are fluid. Like there's going to be things that, that you'll come to learn in, in the future uh, as you kind of expose yourself to different places. And that it's, you know, similar to that kind of, well, in, in some ways, um, thinking about gender fluidity or those kind of spheres is that you know it's 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 not fixed there's always things you'll be able to learn and there's always an evolution there um if you're open-minded so providing that education as well I mean that can be an intervention in itself and being like did you know that beliefs are subject to change like you might feel strongly about this now but in the future like you might feel different yeah and I think that's that's so so powerful we always have a tendency to 
to have that fixed mindset. But I think that can be a really freeing kind of insight that that young people, but also, you know, clients in general can have. Yeah. I really liked your interventions as well. Thank you, Brian. One question I had for you was, do we have to always agree with our clients to be able to work with them? Or can I have like, can a client have a view that I disagree with and it's still okay? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I think particularly when it's a, a strongly held belief, it's something that I guess we have no choice but to work with if it forms a strong part of their formulation. I guess this is not so much in terms of offensive views, but I'm thinking about working with people who are strongly religious and uh, like I'm not religious myself. So it's thinking about how you tap into the strength or the the, the assets that, that their religious beliefs or, or other beliefs bring into their life. So I guess the classic thing is encouraging them to utilize prayer as a form of coping or um, yeah, using their relationship with God to give them hope or to give them some sense of hope or resilience. So I think that's that's the main example I can think of where you have a difference of, of belief or a difference of opinion, but you can still work kind of therapeutically with that and maximize the outcomes. Yeah. So I guess like there's like a, a spectrum then. So it's like opinions that our clients have and things that are important to them. It can range from like, they like mangoes, I don't like mangoes, to like, they like misogyny, I don't like misogyny, that kind of thing. Um, and <laughs> Mangoes and misogyny, that's the new podcast. <laughs> That'd be a great podcast title, actually. Um, but except I wouldn't want a misogyny podcast. Like, so, but, you know, if, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but it, I like the alliteration, yeah. But it's like, yeah, I feel like, because I'm not spiritual either, so I'm not into um, crystals or tarot or kinesthesiology and um, I've worked with some people who are and it really brings like positive impacts on their life and I found it like very okay to work with that and it's really been on the pointy end that I've considered all of the things that we're talking about. Has that been your experience too? Yeah I think you can really work with with most things unless they're yeah they're kind of in that real danger to self or others or there's a real extremist view or criminal behavior um, I think that that's when we have more of a role. Um, and I, I should mention that there, um, there are some good resources around those extremist views and, and radicalization. I think the resource is called Living Together in Australia, um, Living Safe Together. And basically, they recommend that you, I guess, do a little bit of a risk, risk assessment um, around extremist views if you're getting that vibe. So just checking in with any criminal activity, checking the kind of rigidity or the intensity of their beliefs. And then like check in with the, the any kind of social activity around those beliefs if they're hanging out with particular types of people and getting a sense of perhaps how alienated they are within their friends and family. Yeah, because there is that risk of people going into that violent extremism and quite extreme views. So, I mean, when you say that, I feel like, oh, crap, like, okay, that requires, I'm like, supervision, right? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it can feel like a, a stressful place, but also I think, it's a, it presents a real opportunity. I mean, we know that um, a lot of people that end up uh, adopting extremist views are, are really struggling with themselves. Like they've got uh, had difficulties perhaps in their family life or, yeah, with their upbringings. So I think even though it feels scary, I, the fact that they're in a therapy room with you probably suggests that there's still a lot of hope to, um, to work with them and to build, I guess, a more positive sense of self within them. Yeah, totally. Um, and I'll link to that resource in the show notes. Um, did you have any other resources that you thought would be helpful for listeners? 
Um, nothing particular. The only other thing that we kind of touched on was using kind of low level offense as a as a rapport building tool like we talked about mangoes yeah and uh, and music but i think uh, oftentimes like particularly when i work with students is setting up those little points of disagreement so like you know is kfc better than maccas obviously or like you know <laughs> Messi is better than ronaldo i think that can be really useful in building that rapport but also kind of modeling that um, disagreement or, or rupture within the therapeutic relationship for example yeah later down the track if you've got to disagree or butt heads on something then you've got uh, a bit of practice on that and it builds that, that bond. Yeah, no, I think that's really brilliant. And thank you for bringing that up because I say that in my initial spiel, something to that effect that, you know, we're working together on the same team, but it doesn't always mean that we'll completely agree with each other. There might be difficult conversations that we have and things that we disagree on. And I hope that over time we'll be able to talk out these things together um, so we can get on the same page and really help you keep on moving along. It's such a, a beautiful thing to model. And it's what the world needs. You know, we don't all don't need to agree. No. But we can all we can all get along. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. One hundred percent. And it really is because a lot of a lot of clients in my experience, um, they don't have good experiences with handling conflict in their interpersonal lives. So it's like a disagreement can quickly escalate to a screaming match for some people. Mm. Um, so they don't want to bring up any disagreement at all. So I feel like being able to model um, those minor disagreements, like you say, is really powerful. And then they'll feel more comfortable bringing it up later and being like, okay, I can disagree with Brian and I know that he's not going to go apeshit at me. Yeah, that real kind of corrective relational experience i don't know if that's even a term but yeah it's what it is it's, yeah um, it is well one moment when they can resolve it in a, a nice way yeah brian is there anything that we've left out that listeners should know about in talking about offensive views or dealing with it in the therapy room no i think we've pretty much covered it again it's such an interesting topic because it's it covers every aspect of the therapeutic process but i think it can be really useful therapeutically to um to explore. I guess it can be easy to see it just as like a, a side issue or something you just need to kind of manage. But I think often it can be a really powerful um, part of the therapeutic process and lead to some some, some good growth or, or, you know, an increase in, in rapport. So we should definitely have been taught it in. I agree. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, no, thank you. And I guess maybe I would just add that I reckon noticing your reaction to f- offensive views, I reckon like, this is something that I'm working on, just noticing all my reactions to like lots of things that clients say and what that brings up in me, including offensive stuff, because then I get to know about what's important to me and what's not. I'm particularly sensitive to animals. So I know for myself that I that I cannot work with people who say I have had criminal um, convictions to do with animal cruelty is just a really strong sticking point for me. Um, but that came through a process mm. of reflecting and curiosity. So I feel like it's just really important for psychs to get a grasp on, yeah, what is that spectrum between like, you know, a mango, somebody not liking mangoes, is that your offensive thing that you cannot work with people who don't like mangoes? It's really important to know. <laughs> yeah, fruit, fruit, fruit-based therapy is, um, <laughs> surely it could be a thing. It could be. Yeah. How does, how does fruit make you feel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> it enrages me. <laughs> thank you so much, Brian, for coming on the podcast again. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you for sharing your views on this really important topic. I feel like I could I could totally count this as peer supervision, right? Because I always I always learn heaps after <laughs> after we record. So yeah, thank you. For- yeah, no, likewise. And hopefully listeners, I don't know if you can count it peer supervision, but I hope you enjoyed listening to it anyway.
Thanks listeners for listening and catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. Podcasts are pretty tough and it's really hard to get the word out there. So there are a couple of things you could do to really help us out. One, leave a review. Second, consider sharing the podcast with your peers. We would love you for it. Thanks for listening and see you next time.